folks in Antioch have have been working on this for a long time, so we've jumped on the heels of that and tried to, to, to carry out the reforms that were already set there in place. So I just want to take a moment and say it's a community effort. That's what keeps us going, is that we're joining you guys and we're joining the rest of the community in, in trying to make these changes. The other impact of families have been amazing. I mean, it just the list goes on and on. So we have these horrible things that happen when when some people don't have the courage to take the stance correctly, whether that's the, um, the state legislators who failed us in AB 1608, just at the last second because they bought the argument that a few million dollars is worth giving up civil rights, um, or whether it's a DA that, that did not proceed forward with what we think was, was common sense. Um, however, um, you know, we'll continue to work with it, and we are just uh, just so thankful that the majority of the community has been, um, I think, active in being part of this. All right, that is the voice of Robert Collins, and before that you heard the voice of... Bella and Cassandra Quinto Collins. We were also joined by Ben Dusenbaum and John Burris of the Burris Law Firm, who's representing the Quinto family, the Quinto Collins family, in their civil case. Again, a quick reminder they will be gathering outside of the California State Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland at 1 p.m. tomorrow. That's Wednesday, September 7th. If you are able to join them, they are inviting everyone out there. Again, everyone, thanks for joining us today on Flashpoints. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. You're listening to KBOO Portland's 90.7 FM. The time is 11 a.m. It's time for the bike show. Hello and welcome to the Bike Show. Welcome to the KBO Bike Show. I hope this finds you well and healthy. My name is Alon Rob, and I am joined today by co-host Nedra Deadweiler. Uh, good morning, Nedra. Are you there on the line? I am here. Good afternoon, Alon. Yeah, through the magic <laughs> of radio, we could talk to you and have you join us in spirit, hopefully soon in body also. Where does this find you, Nedra? I am in my home office in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh huh. And how are things in Atlanta this morning? Give me some good great. news today. <laughs> um, it's it's really sunny here. Um, it's nice. Feels good outside. My two doggos are very happy. So um, I think that's that's where we're at. <laughs> and Nedra, who's a bicycle activist and has a wonderful uh, business organization called Civil Bikes, was a guest on our show a year and a half ago, and we're very happy that you are a co-host. Um, so today, the sh um, this is our first live show since the pandemic started two and a half years ago, and I want to shout hooray. Uh, thank you to the KBU staff, the volunteers, and the members that kept the station alive, and also to the Audacity program that made it possible to interview and record. And thank you also to our listeners who stuck with us during this trying time and to those of you who are joining us today. And also I'd like to say a thank you to our engineer today, Ty Walker. Our show today is about cycling in Vancouver, BC. Uh, recently I took Amtrak and went to Vancouver, BC with my bike. And my knowledge is based on riding in that city and uh, talking to cyclists and other people and also some sweat and effort. In the first half of the show, uh, we will speak with Colin Stein. Colin is a longtime bicycle activist, including as executive director of the BC Cycling Coalition. And he is also an author, the author of the recently published 
van bikes, Vancouver's bicycle people, and the fight for transportation change, 1986 to 2011. The book sheds light on how Vancouver, B.C. became a good cycling city and on the men and women who helped make this possible. In the second half of the show, Nedra will speak with Navdeep Tina, Director of Campaigns and Inclusion at Vancouver's HUB Cycling. HUB Hub was established in 1998 to improve cycling conditions and life in Metro Vancouver, and Navdeep helps build a network of inclusive and safe cycling infrastructure for people of all ages, abilities, and backgrounds. Before we speak with our Vancouver, BC guests, a few news items from the vast bicycle universe. Mario Fiorentini, Italy's most decorated Second World War resistance fighter, died at 103. Fiorentini commanded a group of partisans who fought Italian fascists and German Nazis. Among his daring acts was leading an attack on a Rome jail and helping free his comrades, which included two future Italian presidents. Fiorentini escaped on his bicycle, dodging bullets the Germans fired. After the war, he became a mathematician. The Italian culture minister said that Fiorentini led, quote, a life full of passion, of science, of love for freedom. We definitely need more people like that today and any time. May you rest in peace, Mario Fiorentini. And a little four-legged member of my family, Gino Nugget Bartali, named for another Italian resistance fighter and cyclist, the Tour de France and Giro d'Italia winner, Gino Bartali, who also hid Jewish friends in his home and smuggled documents in his bicycle frame and seat, is barking his approval of Fiorentini and sends his condolences. For over two decades, one of the bicycle's greatest champions in Congress has been Oregon Congressman Earl Blumenauer. It is a happy day when this progressive congressman gets a Portland bicycle and pedestrian bridge named in his honor. The 475 feet long and 24 feet wide bridge spans Interstate 84 and connects the Lloyd District with uh, Kearns in inner northeast Portland. Congressman Blumenauer, dedicated cyclist, has long championed sane, environment, sane and environmentally essential transportation options and co-chairs Congress's bicycle caucus. Congressman Blumenauer appeared on our show many years ago. It might be time to invite this progressive congressman, cyclist, and friend of cyclists back to our show. Usually I try to focus on some of the many encouraging and positive bicycle-related news but today I will mention also two less positive ones. The first is about City Bikes, one of Portland's oldest bicycle stores and a true community center. In the past year, there has been conflict between several current and past owners. At the basis of the conflict are different opinions about what to do with the Southeast Ankeny store and annex situated in the midst of one of Portland's real estate mad districts. As someone who has been involved in creating and working in collectively owned and managed businesses and projects, and who has benefited over the years from the wonderful and knowledgeable people working at City Bikes, as well as becoming friends with some of them, this development is even more sad. I have reached out to several of the people involved, individuals representing different perspectives, and hope to host several of them during our October show. And finally, I would like to remember and honor several members of the Portland cycling community who died recently much, much, much before their time. Within a two-month period, the bicycle community lost individuals who were an essential part of it. These include Aaron Tarfman, Derek Johnson, Yohai Sat, and Rabbit Fox. Some died on the road, others through suicide or accident. May their memory be blessed, and in whatever reality they may be, may they rest in peace, but also if they so wish, hop on a bicycle and ride. You're listening to the bike, the KBO Radio Bike Show. These have been some news items from across the bicycle universe. My name is Alon Rob, and my co-host is Nedra Deadweiler. Uh, our first guest today is Colin Stein, a longtime bicycle activist, including as the executive director of the BC Cycling Coalition, 
Colin Stein is the author of the recently published Van Bikes, Vancouver's Bicycle People and the Fight for Transportation Change, 1986 to 2011. Comprised of interviews with 115 activists, Stein skillfully weaves their stories into a book about how change happens and the people whose love and tenacity makes that change possible. Good morning, Colin Stein. Are you on the line? I am alone. Can you hear me okay? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, so before we get to the book and cycling in your city, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, maybe some early bicycle experiences? Sure, sure, can do. And um, and thanks for having me on, by the way. Uh, congrats to you and, and to Nedra and to Ty for being uh, back in the studio. It's a great thank, thing. Thank you. And um, yeah, and so I, I uh, just a little bit about me, I guess. I, I grew up in uh, Toronto, um, and uh, so Canadian, uh, of course, and um, grew up without much thought about, uh, I guess, transportation choices, simply because there were quite a few uh, in the 70s and 80s in Toronto, the the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission, buses and subway network all across the city, um, walked to school, uh, and, and of course was on my bike quite a bit. Um, and perhaps the one thing that maybe distinguished uh, my my childhood and my youth from, from others who uh, lived maybe in the same time and place and maybe all over North America was I didn't um, get my driver's license at 16. Um, I, for really no reasonable explanation, I just sort of avoided it, but I think it's because I was able to, again, given the choices that I had. And I went to uh, university um, uh, in Kingston, Ontario, which is halfway between Montreal, another great cycling city in Toronto, um, and I was able to get away and get a sense of independence. But again, I was able to get around just on foot on a variety of uh, means and modes. And so it wasn't until I moved out um, to Vancouver in 1995 um, with my bachelor's of arts degree, which I thought at the time was all a person really needed uh, <laughs> to get a great career, uh-huh. and uh, but I was able to take my uh, my creative background, uh, which is definitely a big part of my my again my childhood, and my youth, and I was able to get a job in marketing right at the point at which uh, the internet and the um, the com- the computer explosion uh, was happening in the, in the 1990s. So. Um, just sort of seamlessly moved my way into Vancouver. Um, very welcoming city I found uh, environmentally, of course, stunning and beautiful and uh, a lot of things you can do recreationally. And, and I just found myself able to get around uh, still uh, by bike and by transit quite a bit. Um, but I, I did uh, end up in, in a relationship which, uh, you know, uh, became my wife and, you know, started a family and kids and suburban life. Um, and in Vancouver, that often means getting a car. And, and again, I was fairly unconscious just about um, choices and getting around, and I was able to uh, adjust to uh, motordom, car life, and it really didn't become uh, anything remarkable to me, this idea of transportation, or at least an area of interest for me, uh, until uh, 2013, when I found out about Hub, who you'll be speaking with, uh, Navdeep, who's uh, a couple a couple of positions but in, in you know my successor uh separated maybe by a couple people over time but he, he does the job that i did at hub for a few years and when i found out about uh advocacy policy work related to transportation and the work that hub was doing and especially values-based cause-based uh, non-profit work it all kind of came together for me and it was an instant click and so that kind of set me down this road and the rest is history as they say um, That's it. <laughs> in a few words, we don't have hours, but uh, for those not familiar with your city of Vancouver, um, what distinguishes it as far as history, geography, population? Well, history-wise, it mirrors a lot of uh, North American and maybe even many European cities have this around uh, the mid to late 19th century. A great fire happened, so that was in 1886, uh, just a month after the city's incorporation. So, of course, many cities have that have that history of a, of a remarkable fire. Um, it, it was something that didn't really stop the development of the city uh, and didn't really delay it much uh, beyond what was already kind of a delayed start. So you have many North American cities that uh, in the late 19th century and early into the 20th began developing uh, their transportation networks. And here I am diving right into the, the subject matter mm-hmm. um, and some streetcars, uh, subways, highways. Uh, what distinguishes Vancouver to some degree is I think um, the city was about uh, 20 to 30 years behind the pace of others. And just, you know, think of it as being the westernmost 
um, Canadian large city and maybe not the northernmost, but across North America, combining the U.S. and Canada, it's one of the largest, most well-known, but again, western and northernmost. So perhaps that has something to do with its uh, delayed development to some degree. Uh, but geographically, I think there's been a um, uh, maybe a, um, a slow uh, but steady uh, pace of growth due to just the natural wonders. So uh, people talk about how in one day you could ski the mountains of the North Shore and then uh, sun yourself on the beach at, in, in Kitsilano, one of the, the neighborhoods uh, um, with with beautiful ocean access. Um, you have a very walkable city, but Vancouver is just one piece in the Metro Vancouver, the regional puzzle. So throughout the first half of the 20th century and actually the entire 20th century till today, um, it's the regional municipalities. So think of Burnaby, that's where Michael J. Fox is from, or you have um, you know Maple Ridge, Richmond, you have all these other municipalities, kind of like Vancouver, Washington, or sorry, Vancouver, Oregon would be for, um, oh, is Vancouver, Washington, or Oregon? Yeah, in Washington. Uh, we haven't Washington. annexed it yet. This is a coordinated monthly test of the emergency alert system through broadcast stations in the greater Portland-Vancouver area, including Clackamas, Columbia, Multnomah, and Washington counties in Oregon, and Clark County in Washington. With the cooperation of public safety broadcasters and cable operators, this system informs you of events that pose an immediate threat to your life, health, or property. If this had been an actual emergency, official information would have followed the alert tone. This test was originated by Clark Regional Emergency Services Agency in Vancouver, Washington. This concludes this test message. When there was a big freeway debate and this fight, such as it was, uh, never resulted in either uh, the, in, an interstate or a freeway system coming through Vancouver, nor did it result in rapid transit, in any sort of uh, rail or expansion of, of a bus or streetcar lines. So we were kind of in this holding pattern period, which allowed Vancouver to maintain a really charming, you know, street grid, you know, sort of the old streetcar grid of the night of the eight, late eight, 1900s, or yeah, late 1800s and early 1900s. We maintained a lot of character, and that's what people seek out. And with the mountain and beach access, it's this a remarkable place that people love to come to, but it resulted in a stagnation of our transportation network. Mm. And Portland, like many American cities and perhaps Canadian cities, it's an ongoing battle with uh, the automobile and freeways being built. Uh, and surprisingly enough, through communities of color, of people of color always, um, but um, we are speaking with Colin Stein, Vancouver, British Columbia bicycle activist, um, so Vancouver, the city itself, would you describe it as a good cycling city? And would you say it's in the forefront of bicycle-friendly cities in uh, North America? Yeah, yes, and a qualified yes, because or a qualified maybe, I'd say, because uh, yes to the degree that uh, there's a, um, a marked and signed um, cycling network that really relies on um, people's comfort cycling along car alongside cars. Um, you have a network of some painted lanes throughout downtown and other parts of the city, and then very few, but I would say world-class, uh, physically separated bike lanes and uh, multi-use paths, whether uh, combined uh, with pedestrians or marked or or structured uh, separately. But you know, if you wanted to get some of the most glorious beach and mountain views and you know enjoy downtown and get out to uh, other places we have lots of parks in vancouver too it's a wonderful cycling city but the, the qualified yes slash maybe um depends really on who you are if you're new on a bike if you're visiting the city for the first time and you're unfamiliar if you are somewhat tentative if you've had a close call or a crash in the past and you, you're just really not comfortable being around um fast moving large vehicles and lots of traffic, then it could be seen as a moderate to maybe slightly unfriendly city. And so there's volume of traffic. There's also the attitudes of people behind the wheel and some of the borderline road rage instances that you might find like you would in any city mm -hmm. on, a, on a daily basis. So not to present this, oh no, it's, it's not so great. 
it's a again i will say a, a, a remarkable remarkable and beautiful and welcoming city in many ways for many types of people doing many types of cycling mm-hmm. um and you come to vancouver to see it but it's by no means perfect and of course there's lots of work to do every city could say that and that's why we have these wonderful bicycle organizations and as a visitor to the city recently and i took my bike uh, it's interesting, you know, there were a few places. I, I stayed at the hostel at the university and, um, you know, rode downtown. And there are a few nice paths, avenues for cycling between houses and trees and, and so forth. And Stanley Park, of course. Um, are there any, do you have any idea of what percentage of the population of Vancouver cycles and any statistics on who rides, actually? Yes, there there are some statistics from the uh, the 2016 um, uh, Canadian Census, and unfortunately, we're talking just for the purpose of that answering that question. We're probably talking a few weeks to a few months from when we'll get the, the 2021 census data uh, that would talk about transportation and cycling. So this these numbers are about five years old that I'm going to rhyme off. But um, in in British Columbia, so the province is is five million people. Um, it's uh, the last census uh, suggested that there's um, you know, two and a half percent commuting by bike, so the mode share mode share for for work, um, and so in terms of bicycle commuting, um, there are some some you know city like Revelstoke you might never have heard of in the interior of British Columbia at around fourteen fifteen percent, uh, Victoria our capital is eleven percent, Whistler is ten percent, Vancouver um, so this is the city of Vancouver itself again about three quarters of a million people it's six percent. So um, it's a real variation. I mean, across Canada, I think it's 2.9%, but it really depends on whether you're talking commuting, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're talking about people who cycle for recreation or somewhat habitually. And you could almost suggest that, well, just about everybody has a bike in their garage and their shed and their mm-hmm. bike room. Um, but, you know, who rides it and how often is subject to a lot of lot of debate. Our time is just flying by here, so I'd like to get to your book, which I enjoyed. Uh, I didn't read every word of it yet. Um, It's pretty intense and compact. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your book, Van Bikes, uh, what was involved in writing it? Clearly a labor of love. um, And also, uh, who were some of the activists that you could tell us about that you interviewed? Yeah, well, in, in when I when I stopped working for Hub Cycling, uh, and when I uh, be prior to beginning my work with the BC Cycling Coalition in 2020, uh, there was a couple of years there where I was fascinated with the history of activism and advocacy. I was fascinated with the history also of Vancouver and urban development and just how cities are built, and the fact that there was no virtually no recognition or awareness of the advocates and activists. So there's people pushing for policy or you know protesting on the streets there was not a lot of recognition of who was involved what they accomplished and in many ways working with various uh, orders of government to actually get stuff done to support the planning and engineering so i began interviewing and i ended up with 115 interviews as you mentioned in the intro of uh, people working within and without government uh, on everything from critical mass to, again, developing policies and writing letters, sitting in endless council meetings and doing all the hard work that uh, you and some of your listeners probably know quite well. Um, and I just, without an aim in mind, I wanted to document the history, photograph them, collect some artifacts, and then it turned into this idea for a book, which I didn't think I would ever get done. But uh, COVID uh, yielded some interesting possibilities for <laughs> taking some time and investing in myself. And some of the people, um, I mean, Boy, it's, it's really remarkable. This does go back. There is a connection I found, and I won't try to get into it now, but to the uh, the freeway fight and the stagnation of transportation policies from the 60s into the 70s. And it needed uh, we needed the Expo, the World's Fair in 1986, to trigger some developments. But there were politicians from um, future um, uh, premiers of the province who were at the time were serving on city council and eventually became uh, you know, mayor and leaders in, in other ways in the province. Uh, there were people working for TransLink, uh, which came out of BC Transit, the regional uh, transit and transportation authority uh, for Metro Vancouver. Um, and then there were people that no one would ever hear about, but they'd see maybe photographs of a so-called protester or activist on the front page of the Vancouver Sun or province uh, here in, in Vancouver, and they'd, they'd wonder who this, this person was. Well, I ended up speaking to a lot of these people that really helped make a difference culturally, who helped bring uh, people from all walks of life together, as you know, as you may know, and your listeners as well, in these 
meetings where you're pushing for change, you need the engineer. You need someone who understands law, who, who can work with finances, who can organize and be a people person. So these people all got together, and I could give you names that no one would really know, but on my website, uh, fanbikes.ca, uh, not to self-promote, but there is there are blog entries for a few dozen of these advocates and activists that tell a little bit of their story. Of course, also tell you how to get my book. I'm not going through Amazon, so you can get a digital copy or I can ship to the States. But mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting story, and there's probably some parallels with uh, mm-hmm. what um, Portland uh, activists have been through, some of whom play into actually the Vancouver story as well. Yeah, looking through the book, and I admire the way you were able to weave all those stories and interviews that would have been so much easier just to put an interview after an interview, and you created a wonderful uh, story which you tell well. Um, so, uh, you know, I thought of Portland, of course, and other cities I've lived in, Davis, Berkeley, and so forth, Eugene, mm-hmm. and what could be learned from that. So, uh, for our listeners or anybody who's interested in getting the book or looking at finding out more about it, what is your website? Yes, so it's vanbikes.ca, vanbikes, all one word, mm-hmm. and uh, you can find out everything you need to know about Vancouver, you can, of course, get the book, and hopefully um, there's some, I think there's not only some parallels, but a really special connection uh, with the bike Portland scene. Mm-hmm. And, uh, someone who I think you've had on your show, Ted Bueller, uh, was up here in Vancouver for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the World Naked Bike Ride is something that mm-hmm. we sort of share in common as well as Bike Summer. So there's some great stories from about 20 years ago. And um, and I really appreciate your kind words. And I think it's uh, important for every city to know its story, whether official and sanctioned uh, or uh, subculture. And, and um, I, I think it's important for everybody to be recognized for the effort that they put mm-hmm. into making their cities uh, livable. Mm-hmm. And uh, often it's, I mean, I mentioned Congressman Blumenauer, who's done a lot, but it's often also the activists we don't hear about and the people mm-hmm. who write. And I also noticed on YouTube uh, a talk you gave, so people could watch that. I think it's an hour's talk about the book. Um, we only scratched the surface here, unfortunately, and it's almost time for our next guest. But uh, before we go, maybe in the next minute or two, um, what's next for you personally? Well, there, there were about a half million words of testimony. It's, it's an oral history, so mm-hmm. I had to talk to people, and I got some great stuff, mm-hmm. but not everything made it into this book, which, although it's, a, it's, a, it's somewhat big, um, there's so much great uh, information, history, and I think lessons learned from the Vancouver story. So I would love to um, have the opportunity and get some support, perhaps, to actually write that mm-hmm. next book, which I think would be more helpful to other cities. Uh, but as well, there are perhaps other books in me at the same time, I'm I'm busy working in uh, in Vancouver and looking for the next adventure. And I think uh, uh, this is this is a wonderful city. And the West Coast is such an amazing place to be able to. Uh, I think sometimes see some of the most progressive, um, you know, policies and ideas uh, come out and be uh, road tested here, so to speak. And perhaps to allow uh, cities like Portland and Vancouver to be leaders. So I'd love to be uh, a part of that idea generation. And if I can, uh, one day uh, the policy making. Amen. Um... And uh, if you make it to Portland, Oregon, uh, we'd be happy to host you and ride with you, of course. Um, Well, I'd like to thank our first guest today. We've been speaking with Colin Stein of Vancouver, B.C., a bicycle activist and the author of the recently published Van Bikes, Vancouver's Bicycle People and the Fight for Transportation Change, 1986 to 2011. Thank you, Colin Stein, for being on the show, and all the best. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it very much. All right. And you are listening to the KBO Radio Bike Show, broadcasting live from Portland, Oregon. This is our first live show since the pandemic started. The show could be heard the first Wednesday of the month on 90.7 FM. For those of you that still use a radio and like to turn the dial, as I do, And also you could stream it at kbo.fm. And all our shows are archived at www.bikeshow.portlandtransport.com. In the second half of the show, Nedra Deadweiler, my co-host, will speak with Navdeep Kina. He's Director of Campaigns and Inclusion at Hub, Vancouver, B.C.'s largest bicycle organization, which has been in existence since 1998. Navdeep Kina oversees inclusion and diversity efforts, media relations, 
stakeholder relations, community relations, and advocacy efforts, helping build a network of inclusive and safe cycling infrastructure for people of all ages, abilities, and background. So Nedra, take it. Take it. The show is in your hands. All right. Thank you, Alain. That was a great um, interview with Colin. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thanks for keeping us on the air, Ty. I appreciate you. And everyone, thanks for joining us again at KBOO. I'm excited to be here. And as Alain just um, gave you the overview of Nesdeep. Nesdeep, are you here? Yes, I am. Hello, my friend. Hello, Alain. Hi. Hi. It's so great to have you here. Um, so I would love to hear more about um, your story, work that you're doing in Vancouver and just hear how you are um, building up these efforts to create a truly safe, inclusive bicycling community in Vancouver. Um, so let's, let's begin. Thank you. Thank you for extending me this opportunity. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Um, uh, to start with, I must acknowledge that I am a settler on the traditional ancestral and stolen lands of the Muskian, the Slavatis, and the Squamish nations. Uh, before I uh, called this my home, I grew up in Chandigarh, a small city in India. Um, and growing up in Chandigarh, cycling was um, always how most people, uh, people of all ages and abilities, that traveled around the city. Um, but like most immigrants, when I moved to Canada, cycling was a luxury that I was not able to afford. Uh, and, and mainly because um, um, cycling was not a fast and easy uh, way to, tra to tra uh, travel. Uh, however, over time, I was lucky enough to get back into cycling and using that as my mode of uh, transportation uh, for both myself and my family. And, uh, and then I happened to be uh, fortunate enough to work for an organization that was making cycling accessible to people of all ages and abilities. Uh, and uh, yes. Oh wow! So that's um, that's very interesting. How did you how did you get into this role of activism, this role of community building? How did you find your way to hub? Uh, before, um, if I could jump in for a second, excuse me, um, Navdeep, are you using a speakerphone because we kind of have a. It's not as technically uh, great as we would like. If you are spe using a speakerphone, it might be better not to. But Okay, give me one second. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Alon. Mm -hmm. Is this better? Okay. Oh, yes. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, you were uh, going to say something. Oh, yes. You know, I did have a little bit of difficulty of hearing you. So do you mind repeating your, your um, introduction to yourself? And maybe that would help uh, yes. everyone so that we can level set and just, you know, move forward. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I started by acknowledging that I am a settler on the traditional um, stolen lands of the, the Muslim people, the Squamish nations and the Slavitut people. Um, before I moved here, I grew up in a small little town called Chandigarh in India. Uh, where cycling was the mode most people used, people of all ages and abilities, to travel around town. And um, as, as a new immigrant, cycling was not something I, I could afford, in part because of it not being safe uh, and faster than traveling. Um, and eventually over years, uh, it was something I was able to get back into. And I count myself uh, very lucky to be able to do that because of the, the mental wellness, the physical wellness, uh, and the joy it brings as a mode of transportation. Yes, that introduction was um, really impactful. Like it's, it was a very deep, and I would love for us to just kind of unpack it a little bit and get more into, because you started with the land acknowledgement and and I think that that is something that is significant, that is really changing, and um, a movement that is, I will say, come across at least Canada and the U.S. Um, to begin to look at our past, our our country looking at looking at their past. 
and the impact of some of the harms of settler colonialism. And, um, and you also talked about being an immigrant and then also what your experience like was like biking in your home country of India. So um, I guess first, can we talk about the land acknowledgement? How are you able to pull that into your work? Um, yeah. Uh, starting with the land acknowledgement, um, it's 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 a it's a very small but the right step to do to acknowledge uh, the land we live on, the communities that have lived before us, uh, and also how this was stolen from them. Uh, but um, as an organization, we are also trying to move past land acknowledgement. Uh, 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 we are also looking into our actions. So what are we doing uh, to uh, to correct the wrongs of the past? And how can we use our position of uh, privilege to become a stronger ally and help the communities, uh, and not just the, the indigenous people who lived before us on these lands, but also other marginalized communities, financially marginalized. Um, women don't have equal access to resources. Uh, so how can, how can we support them all? Yeah, that's a, an important, um, an important thing to acknowledge and to express that you're moving past um, what could be a performative act and really going deep into the work. And, you know, looking at Hub's page, um, there is a lot of work that's taking place around diversity and inclusion and community building. Um, but I guess before we get into some of that, um, can you tell us a little bit about Hub and what, what Hub does? Yes, uh, HUB is a not-for-profit charity um, that has been advocating to make uh, our, our communities more connected communities. Um, we will be celebrating our 25th anniversary next year, uh, a, a big milestone. Um, and our mission is to get more people cycling more often. And, and we do this by um, educating people, uh, by organizing events, uh, doing advocacy work, but also uh, conducting research. Uh, we are a fact-based organization, and uh, we do our own research to make sure that uh, the demands we make are based in science. As a not-for-profit charitable organization, um, we, we believe that more cycling means happier, healthier, and connected communities. And... Uh, we want to make cycling an attractive choice for people of all ages and abilities. Um, and, and we are a membership-based organization. Uh, we have more than 3,000 members. And you can become a hub member, a, a lifetime hub member, for as low as $10. Uh, we try to keep the financial barrier as low as possible so that people from all segments of our society can become a member of hub. Uh, but we also have thousands of volunteers who do our advocacy work across Metro Vancouver. Um, yes. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, how did you find yourself at Hub? Um, I initially joined Hub, um, I think, around six years ago as Director of Communications. Um, and since then, I've been working on most of our advocacy work. Um, your previous speaker, Colin Stein, was my predecessor. He, uh, he built a very strong foundation that I was able to take advantage of. Um, uh, but the, the history of second advocacy work shows uh, exclusion of people, exclusion of people from racialized communities, from financially marginalized communities, people with disabilities, indigenous people, immigrants from non-European nations, and also women and non-binary people. Um, this is reflected both in the people doing this advocacy work, but also people who are building the infrastructure in our cities, uh, the people who are using active transportation infrastructure sector. Um, and, and during the Black Lives Movement, as an organization, we too felt the need to uh, acknowledge our privileges, uh, to, uh, to recognize the benefits we have received as an organization uh, from years of this uh, privilege, and then also to find ways to use our position of privilege um, to, to become a, a stronger ally for the marginalized, to make sure that they are there on the decision-making table alongside us 
uh, and speak out for them. Um, we we now strive to be an advocate for racial and cultural equity while continuing to do our work to get more people cycling more often. Yes, um, that's great. So with the, uh, it's, it's also great to hear that the Black Lives Matter movement that took place or that is really still ongoing has impacted and changed your organization. Um, some of the measures that are um, of the programming and um, what is it, close the gap, um, some of the initiatives that um, Hub has taken up. Can you describe some of the changes or have there been changes within those who ride? Um, and could you share, you know, a few stories, of some examples of those changes? Um, so uh, another thing we uh, we are learning is that um, this is uh, going to be a long, long journey. Uh, we are not anticipating that things will change dramatically overnight, but this is something we uh, we want to have a big shift towards. Um, in in city of Vancouver, um, there was. Um, uh, Valo Canada, um, a national organization, did a bike count to better understand who is cycling in Vancouver. Um, for their sample size, they counted about 26,000 people in 12 high-traffic locations in Vancouver. And 67% of the people were white. 84% uh, were adults. 65% were male. Um, only 4% of the people were uh, either Middle Eastern, Lyran, Black, or Indigenous, and uh, only 3% were South Asian. Um, um, only 4% were children. So we, we still have a lot of work to do to make our cities uh, truly accessible to people of all ages, abilities, and backgrounds. Yes, definitely, because that is a, that is a huge gap between um, gen based on gender, based on age, based on race, um, and and you started out by talking that you know that sense of urgency that your organization recognizes that to achieve some sort of equity, it's going to take some time. Uh, as the way that um, Hub is addressing. I guess race equity has that changed the positionality. Yes, definitely. So we again are fortunate that we have a board of directors as well as a leadership team that wants to see this change. So uh, we we have a very clear mandate from our board that uh, we need to become a more inclusive organization, uh, not only in terms of the people who work here, but also the communities that we reach out to uh, while delivering our programs. Um, since uh, this was in 2019 that our uh, board. Uh, issued that directive um, and since then we have changed the way we communicate we we don't just speak uh, or uh, uh, share our content in English but we try to use other languages that are predominantly spoken in our community like uh, in, such, in some uh, parts of the city it's Mandarin uh, Farsi in other places Punjabi might be another big language in a different community um, we use images of everyday people doing everyday things in our marketing materials. We use people uh, of all uh, body sizes, ages, uh, and ethnic backgrounds. Um, when we are hiring new staff members, we uh, we give lived experience uh, equal weightage as institutional education. Um, we do not force our staff to celebrate or take days off to celebrate just Christian holidays. Um, and, and to keep ourselves accountable, we publish a semi-annual update on our website to talk about the work we have done so far and what we are hoping to do in the future. Mm -hmm. That's really amazing. Um, uh, could you talk more about um, partnerships? Like, do, what Do you have um, diverse partnerships um, with Hub and community groups? And um, can you share like how you built those partnerships, what it took? Um, again, again, a lot, a lot, a lot of door knocking and uh, a lot of uh, slow steps. 
um, one of the um, one of our goals is not to go to these communities uh, and tell them that this is how uh, we or cycling will uh, improve their lives. Uh, but instead, we are trying to work with different communities to better understand what are the goals they have for their communities, for their cities, and how cycling can become an integral part to accomplish those goals. Um, so this involves a slow learning process, uh, talking to those communities and trying to understand their needs instead of uh, giving them our solutions. Yes. Okay. So building upon understanding, um, doing some needs assessment and definitely um, prioritizing lived experience really helps to, I think, move organizations along as well as build those relationships. Can you talk about um, the programming that and the relationship building that you have with um, the Coastal Salish people, the First Nations in Vancouver? Um, definitely, uh, we we um, uh, worked on a project uh, with a local organization um, called uh, Red Fox Organization, um, and Red Fox um, works a lot with indigenous urban youth uh, who could be at risk to uh, provide them support and programs. Um, and um, last year, we worked on a program with the Red Fox. Uh, to identify at-risk youth. Um, and uh, uh, the first part of the program, we um, we trained them to uh, repair a bicycle, to do minor fixes on their bicycle. But then we also trained them to deliver cycling education to other people so that they can use this as a source of income. Uh, and lastly, we gave them cycling education lessons so these people could safely bike around their communities uh, to use cycling as a mode of transportation. Um, and it was a, a, a really heartening to see how uh, much uh, uh, this was appreciated by that community. And we're hoping to make it a regular program that we are hoping to deliver every year. Okay. Um, there are some other initiatives that um, have, has. Um, could you tell us more about the newcomer bike mentorship program and cycling equity in older buildings, and um, also the national framework that the group that you're in coalition with other advocacy groups in building. And mainly, it's more of not just a description, but why these programs. You know, why did these programs occur? I know that it's because of the door knocking and the community building the relationships, but um, can you speak to that specificity a little bit? Yes, definitely. Uh, the, the Newcomer Program is another amazing program uh, that we were uh, fortunate enough to have a federal government support on. So our, uh, our desire is that uh, when people immigrate to Canada, uh, we give them the opportunity to see how cycling can be a, a mode of transportation that is quite often um, faster and a healthier way to uh, travel around. And in order to do that, we... Um, uh, we uh, just reached out for volunteers who were willing to join new immigrants uh, as um, a community event as where they would get together, go for a bike ride, they'll show them the neighborhood and uh, partner together to cycle around. Uh, and we also gave uh, new immigrants uh, bicycles and cycling education as part of the program. Uh, and the hope is that um, they will recognize that uh, driving or using a vehicle is not the only way to get around, but there are other healthier options like cycling or walking, uh, in addition to building a network of friends uh, in the new community. This is, again, uh, the second year we are uh, doing this program, and again, we have more volunteers uh, than we can uh, use to participate. Um, for the equity in older buildings, what we recognized is that um, cycling storage is not always accessible for people of all ages and abilities in older buildings. Uh, it is changing quite a bit in newer buildings. 
Um, however, in older buildings, uh, people will either have to carry their bike a few stories up or they'll have to um, leave it outside where it, there are chances that it can get stolen. Or for young parents, uh, for a mother with a young child, it's not just even an option to lug a bike around while they're also taking care of the child. Um, so our research team is currently conducting um, a, a research to better understand what are the challenges in older buildings uh, and how can they be addressed to um, make cycling more accessible? What are, what are the solutions with uh, keeping in mind that there are also financial implications of uh, making these changes? At the same time, we are also doing um, an equity analysis of the cycling infrastructure in Metro Vancouver. Uh, this is to better understand um, uh, what kind of infrastructure is there in underrepresented communities, marginalized communities, financially marginalized communities. Uh, and this will help us uh, better advocate for um, infrastructure in those communities. Um, we, we hope to uh, have our, a more investment in communities where this infrastructure is needed the most, not necessarily where the communities have the luxury to advocate and demand uh, active infrastructure. Um, and there was third thing that you wanted me to talk about, but I am not remembering that now. Oh, just um, about the national framework, and I think you just spoke to it, right? Yes, another national framework is something um, that um, almost all uh, cycling advocacy groups like ours across the countries uh, are working on to build um, so that we can, again, once again, address the privileges we have and how to use our position of strength to become stronger allies. But uh, in addition to the national framework, we internally are also building our own framework. And uh, this is along the same lines. First, we want to acknowledge um, uh, that the indigenous people, um, the people with disabilities, uh, communities that have been marginalized by white supremacy, um, even our animals and biodiversity, how they have suffered because of uh, colonization. And secondly, what we as an organization will do uh, to ensure that we can uh, do better. In order to do all of this work, it seems like there has to be a team of people because it's surmountable. I mean, white supremacy has been around for as long as um, these countries have been around, even before. So, so to dismantle it and to build something new and different from it, it takes a lot of support and just many minds coming together for all the perspectives. Can you tell us some about the team of people or your team or how you, you know, go about doing doing this work? Yes, you, you are very correct. It, it, it is a lot of work. Um, uh, and uh, w w like I said earlier, we are privileged that we have um, a very, um, a very willing board of directors, uh, um, equally willing leadership team, but uh, all our staff uh, recognizes the need and desire to do this. Um, we, we initiated uh, the process by first uh, um, doing a decolonization training uh, and assessment for our, uh, for our organization. We worked with a local First Nations uh, group called Hummingbirds Rising uh, to go. Uh, they they did a workshop with us so that um, our staff can better understand the past harms, and also they guided us as to what and where should we go next. What steps we should take to become a more inclusive organization. Mm -hmm. And was this the uh, hub cycling diversity policy that was released, or is this um, an, in addition to? In, in addition but that, to that? Yeah, the diversity policy was something that our board recognized and uh, and um, directed the staff to work on. Uh, the board wanted us to become a more diverse and inclusive organization. As and as a part of that process, we uh, took steps to first uh, undergo decolonization training and then start building a framework and um, smart, measurable uh, goals that will keep us accountable. 
Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing transparently and also sharing your your intentionality and hope's intentionality around diversity. And um, just two more questions to kind of wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen any changes like cascading from the work that Hub is doing within the bike culture in Vancouver? Yes, definitely. Uh, we we are um, seeing more organizations doing similar work, um, and we are working with many organizations to collectively uh, join our forces. Uh, but we're also seeing more people cycling um, uh, in our cities uh, from all these different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. One challenge continues is better research and better stats on uh, these numbers, which we are hoping uh, to work on and collect better data. Oh, that sounds great. As a person who cycled in Vancouver, it's probably close to an early 2010. Um, I'm sure a lot of things have changed. And so I'm wondering, like 10 years from now, so 2032, where would you like to see cycling in Vancouver and or and other organizations such as such as Hub? Where would you like to see them in yeah. in ten years? One of the things is we recognize as an organization uh, that we must respect all modes of transportation. We understand that there are times that uh, somebody might need to uh, uh, use a vehicle or they might need to take a transit uh, or they might need to walk. Uh, However, we hope that the cities we build in the future uh, are equitable cities. Uh, uh, people of all ages and abilities, be it uh, a, a man, woman, a child, uh, they should have the ability to safely access all modes of transportation. Uh, we want to build cities where we are moving people in a safe fashion, not necessarily just to vehicles uh, from A to B. That's a fantastic vision. Um, we have been speaking with Nevdeep China, from Director of Campaigns and Inclusion at Hub in Vancouver, B.C. Thank you so much, Nadeep, for sharing um, your time with us today. And um, thank you, audience, for listening to KBOO Bike Radio Show. Um, good luck to you and all the best in Vancouver. Back to you, Alon. Thank you. Uh, thank you for a wonderful interview, and thank you to our guest as well. You are listening to the KBO Bike Show, and for the first time in two and a half years since the pandemic started, we're happy to be back in the studio. And um, the show could also be heard uh, on the first Wednesday of the month on 90.7 FM and streaming at kboo.fm. All our shows are archived at www.bikeshow.portlandtransport.com. My name is Alon Rob, and I would like to thank our guests today, Colin Stein and Navdeep Chayana of Vancouver, um, for sharing their knowledge, wisdom, and love of cycling and life. And I'd also like to thank my co-host, Nedra Deadweiler. It's been wonderful to be to do this show live with you, and I'm looking forward to many more broadcasts. And I'd also like to thank our engineer, Ty Walker. And most of all, thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. May all your rides be safe and joyful.
girls love cars, cars cause harm to the planet. Don't you wanna take a joy ride on my tandem? Huffy on a huffy, don't I look so handsome? Bikes suffice, they so nice, like priceless. Working on my calves, triceps and biceps, bypass the gas, stop the traffic lights. I get around, round without a driver's license. Hello, you walking? Farewell, I'm off then. And I'm whipping through the city with the 40 and a 50 party popping on my Willie. Really 